0: The following program is recorded content created by The Truth Network.
1: Have you ever heard of the Jewish tradition of wrestling with God? It's time for The Line of
2: Fire with your host, biblical scholar and cultural commentator, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice for moral sanity and spiritual clarity. Call 866-34-TRUTH to get on the line of fire. And now, here's your host, Dr.
1: Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us today on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. There is so much to think about in terms of the national tragedy that took place earlier this week with the slaughter of these children and school teachers in Evaldi, Texas. And as it is Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, I I wanted to bring to you a Jewish dimension of how Jewish people, especially religious Jews, have dealt with the problem and pain of suffering over the generations and of course, Jewish people as a people have suffered in extraordinary ways and so often been the target of attack and hatred and persecution and discrimination and exile and imprisonment and death. So we, we want to talk about this. We want to look at the scriptures. And we're going to open the phones as always, as we do on Thirdly Jewish Thursday, for your calls. So any Jewish related question of any kind. If you're a Jewish listener and you disagree with me about Jesus or if you've got a question about the Hebrew Bible or Hebrew language or want to talk about Messianic prophecy or something that relates to the Jewish people today or the state of Israel today, by all means, give us a call. Phone lines are open. So as long as it's Jewish related, it doesn't have to be on the topic of suffering, but as long as it's Jewish related, your calls are welcome. 866-348-7884. That's 866-348. Truth. You know, in the Bible, you have many psalms of prayer and petition. Right now, as I'm listening to the Bible on audio, I'm in the book of Psalms, and it's striking how many times there are crying out, How long, O Lord? Are you going to forsake me? Are you going to abandon me? Are you going to abandon your people? How long, O Lord? But you don't just have these psalms of petition and crying out, even saying, Lord, wake up. It's as if you're sleeping. Think of the boldness of that prayer. I mean, the Psalmist fully understands that God by nature never sleeps, right? The same Psalms tell us that, that he who, who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps, but it seems as if he's sleeping. Even Psalm 22, which Yeshua prays on the cross, at the beginning of the Psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It seems and feels right now as if you have abandoned me. That's the feeling, that's the experience. But along with that, you have words of protest. You have the book of Job, where Job protests against God. He appeals to God against God. He flees to God from God. And he says, you're smiting me, you're destroying me, but I know if I could go to court with you, I'd be proven right. Well, who's gonna prove him right? Well, justice itself, because God set up a just universe. So even though Job goes too far in his accusations against God, there's a great faith behind it, by which he knows ultimately, in God's universe, there must be justice. There, there must be the setting right of wrongs. The monstrous treating, uh, the monstrous treatment that I'm now getting, Job is thinking. What I'm experiencing from the hand of God, he doesn't know about a devil, right, about Hasatan, Satan. So the, the horrific things I'm experiencing from God now cannot be reflective of the real nature of God. So you have these, these words of protest, within the Hebrew Bible. And you have these words of of deep question and dialogue. And, And out of this has grown a genre of what can be called wrestling with God in Jewish tradition. So it is a great reverence for God, a great honor and respect of God. But at the same time, the feeling that we as God's creation are obligated to bring our concerns to him. So, Classic example, and in the first place you, you see anything like this in the Bible, is Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18. So after the Lord and and two, uh, two angels visit, appear to uh, Abraham and visit him in Genesis 18, then Abraham gets into an extended discussion with the Lord. So Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 16, the men, the two angels, set out from there and looked down towards Sodom, Abraham walking with them to see them off. Now the Lord had said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham is to become a great and populous nation and all the nations of the earth are to bless themselves by him. For I have singled them out that he may instruct his children in his posterity to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is just and right in order that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, the outrage of Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin's so grave. I will go down to see whether they have acted altogether according to the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will take note. The men went on from there to Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Literally, the Lord is there in person with him, talking face to face. Abraham came forward and said, will you sweep away the innocent along with the guilty? Now, just pause there for a moment we're familiar with this narrative. If you've read the Bible, you, you've heard this, you're familiar with it. But think of the audacity that it takes to, to ask that question to God, right? He, he understands, he's, he's talking face to face with the Lord, with Yahweh. And he asked the question, will you sweep away the innocent along with the guilty? I mean, if he said, I know that you will not sweep away the innocent with the guilty because you are righteous, that would be one thing but he's asking the question to to force the answer of, of course not. So this is a, a holy boldness here. What if there should be 50 innocent people within the city and you then wipe out the place and not forgive it for the sake of the innocent 50 who are in it. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to bring death upon the innocent as well as the guilty so that innocent and guilty fare alike. Far be it from you. And then these famous words, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord answered, If I find within the city of Sodom 50 innocent ones, I will forgive the whole place for their sake. Abraham spoke up saying, Here I venture to speak to my Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. What if the 50 innocent should lack five? Will you destroy the whole city for one of the five? Now look at how it gets turned. Instead of saying, for 45, it's like, there's only five missing here. is only five, it went from 50 to 45. You're not going to destroy the city because of five. You're not even talking about all the guilty people in the city. He answered, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. But he spoke to him again and said, what if 40 should be found there? And he answered, I will not do it for the sake of the 40. And he said, let not my Lord be angry if I go on. I mean, this, this takes boldness. What if 30 should be found there? And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, I, I venture again to speak to my Lord. What if 20 should be found there? And he answered, I will not destroy for the sake of the 20. And he said, let not my Lord be angry if I speak with this last time. What if 10 should be found there? And he answered, I will not destroy for the sake of the 20 of the ten. This is this is a, a kind of wrestling with God in prayer, friends, as we step back from the text and consider this. This is petitioning and this is going another step. Lord, I'm gonna ask for this. When we get to Genesis thirty two, we see a real wrestling with with God. Right? Jacob is is called Yisrael, because he strives with, with God and with man. He, he overcomes, he wrestles. He's literally wrestling with a man. Hosea 12 tells us it was a malach, an angel. I believe it was the son of God. And, and Jacob calls the name of the place Peniel. He says, because I've seen the face of God. Face, to face, I've seen the face of God. So Panim is face, El, God, Peniel, the face of God. Uh, it's a real wrestling there. But but then in ongoing Jewish tradition, you have this aspect of great faith challenging God. I know it sounds irreverent to some. And in my own life, I I don't pray in this way. In other words, it doesn't feel natural for me to pray in this way simply because when I'm in his presence, I just say, Lord, you're worthy, you're good, you're righteous, you're perfect, all you do is good and forgive me for my lack of faith or my misunderstanding or whatever. But I know other people, people of real faith, people who love the Lord, who've gotten to this point of of agony of heart that have challenged God. Like, God, there's something wrong. This is not what you promised. This is not the way it's supposed to be. I I can pray prayers, I I guess, like that. Those will flow out of my heart sometimes, but I, I think of an example I've often shared, and with Nancy's permission, shared it publicly, we had lost a number of friends over a period of, of months. It was just one after the other. They, they weren't really close to us, but it was one after the other. And then two families we were close to, one lost a 13-year-old boy in a fire, uh, excuse me, in a, in a freak accident, the other a twelve year old boy in a fire. These were families we were close with, and we knew the kids well. And and it was a it was just a few weeks apart. And I remember the second loss, that that the final loss. It was it was about ten different people in a period of just a few months, but the last two so close to us, and they were children. And Nancy stopped eating, and and. I said, are you fasting? She goes, no, I'm going on a hunger strike. It, it, it was a way of protesting saying, God, it's not supposed to be like this. We have descriptions of who you are in the word and we have your promises in the word. And these are fine people who love you. And these kids were, were kids who honored their parents and, and honor your mother and father, your, your, honor, honor your father and mother that they may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Paul refers to it in Ephesians 6 as the, as the first commandment with a promise. And yet these kids were gone honoring kids and, and, and they died in these freaking terrible ways. And how could it be? There's a tradition in Judaism that wrestles with these things. And Elie Wiesel even shares this account. To many, it'll sound strange. You'll think, I, I don't get this. But in the Holocaust, a group of men came together one day and decided that they were gonna put God on trial. Jewish man, was he liable for the suffering of the Jewish people and the murder of millions of Jews in the Holocaust? And they argued both ways and concluded that he was guilty. And then they went from there to say their evening prayers to worship and honor God. You say, I don't get it. it it's, it's an unusual thing, but it's something that Impute such righteousness and goodness to God and such closeness with us towards Him that you can have these kind of scenarios. I'm just saying these are traditions found in the midst of suffering and pain, and they've helped give people an outlet for their faith to then continue to worship God. We'll be right back, 866-34 Truth with your Jewish related calls.
2: The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the line of fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey
1: friends, we are hoping to have some announcements for you soon about going back to Israel tell you more about that in a moment. Here's the phone number again to call. Now's a great time to call. We'll be able to get to your questions. 866-348-7884. If it's Jewish related, then it is kosher for us on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Um, All right, let let me just switch subjects for a moment and then go back to this Jewish tradition of wrestling with God Uh, and, and tell you a very moving story from a brother I met with in Bethlehem a few years ago. But I've been to Israel, I don't know, 17, 18 times, something like that. But every time I went before the last three times, every time I went, it was exclusively to do ministry. So that's why I was in Israel, speaking at a conference, equipping believers, doing some kind of outreach, whatever. That's, that's why I was there. And that's why I wanted to be there. Uh, the idea of leading a tour group over there never appealed to me so one of my dear colleagues said mike you've really got to do it it's a great blessing to the people that go they're dramatically changed gives you great time with folks that follow your ministry it's a blessing to the ministry as well to do it so i i agreed i said okay we'll do it so we had a busload the first time that we did it and it was great I, i mean as much as i knew that people would be impacted i was still amazed by how deeply they were impacted. Uh, really, I was blown away by it. The only problem was that being on the bus all day, you only sit next to one other person if you're on the bus, right? During the tour, you have a tour guide, so most of the time I'm not gonna be teaching during the day. So I thought, well, okay, what can I do to make it more of a time, where I'm spending good time with the tour group and and we're all being productive while we're there. So what what we, we started to do when we did it the next couple of trips was I would do teaching at key sites, like Mount Carmel where a called called on fire from heaven, or we do baptisms at the river Jordan, where key things like each day we connect in a key way. And then at night we do something together. Maybe I'll be speaking somewhere, come to the meeting with me, or we'll bring in someone to do worship, or I'll do a Q and A, or we'll do a live broadcast from Israel. People can sit in. So this way it's kind of like, hey, We get more time all together and they get the full tour as well. So we we did a couple more tours. I thought, okay, this is great. People are loving it. I'm getting good time with the tour groups and, and it's all good. We were ready to take two buses to Israel before COVID hit. It would have been May of that year. So we were ready with our buses, about a hundred people going and we delayed it, we delayed it. And then we finally canceled it. And I thought, you know, I, I think I'm done doing these tours and, Next time I go to Israel, just be exclusively to minister to the people there. Well, some friends started reaching out to me. Hey, Mike, are you going back to Israel? Because if you do, I want to go. And then someone else, hey, are you going to take a trip to Israel? Because if you do, I want to go. And a stranger follows me on Facebook from Burma, Myanmar, runs into me at at the Dallas airport. Said, do you do tourist Israel? Because if you go, I want to go. I thought, okay. Uh, And I started to get excited about it again suddenly I I was really psyched. And as many times as I've been to the Kotel, the the wall, we call the Wailing Wall uh, here, but just the Kotel, the wall in Israel, as many times as I've been there, welcoming the tour group there, sometimes I've gotten there early and then met the tour group there as as they come from another location and just greeting them as they come up and see the site and praying together there, it, it always moves me. So we are doing our best to lock in details we're going back to Israel for a tour next year. We don't have the details yet, but as soon as we do, we'll announce it. You'll have many months to get ready to go, but hopefully we can have an amazing time there. There, there really is nothing like it on the planet. Okay. <clears throat> when I was speaking at a controversial anti-Zionist conference in Bethlehem a few years ago, I was the one pro-Israel speaker that was there and by invitation for that reason to go against what they were saying and then for them to challenge me i met with a christian brother there he's lived in israel or specifically bethlehem area for some years and tragically he lost his son to cancer and when he tells stories about his son and his upbeat spirit his optimism i mean think think of a boy just a kid i don't know was 11 12 years old at the time I don't know the exact age, but he loses his leg to cancer. And he tells his dad jokingly afterwards, hey, you only have to pay half the amount now when you buy me a new pair of sneakers. I mean, that was the spirit of the kid, but he ultimately lost his son to cancer. Those who've had similar battles and lost children, you can relate to this in a way that I can't. So in church settings, he felt a certain artificiality, his experience. I'm not saying churches everywhere, his experience. Either he couldn't really talk about what he was going through because people couldn't handle it, or just praise the Lord, we're gonna pray, everything's gonna be all right. For him, it didn't help him process the grief. It didn't help him wrestle with God over these things because he's wondering, God, you have the power to heal. You've given promises, where is the healing? It's, that's a kid suffering. I would never do that to my own child. And yet you're letting these things happen. So he began to find some of these traditions in Judaism about wrestling with God. He he met Jews, Israelis, different ones and saw the way they handled suffering and hardship in their own life. And even though he absolutely, thoroughly, completely believes in Jesus as the savior, he found something among the people and the tradition that, that really ministered to him. And so he moved to Israel and became a real friend of Israel and the Jewish people as a Christian follower of Jesus. Those of you who've been through real suffering, those of you who've suffered terrible loss, those of you who have experienced different hardships that would make many of us just faint in, in terror and pain, you understand that, that that can destroy your life or with God's help, it can make you a more compassionate person, a stronger person, a person of greater character, a person of greater perseverance, a person of greater love. And, and you've watched people Destroyed by suffering in their own lives. You've watched them become fearful or bitter or angry or hopeless or depressed or suicidal you've watched marriages fall apart and You've seen others who become more Christ-like through the suffering who draw closer to God who Become more compassionate who have backbones now that are immovable because they're such strong people of faith having been purged in the fire. So these are, these are very, very difficult things, but things that can make us or break us. And I, I wanna take you into a really, really interesting story here that ties in with our subject matter. Of course, during the Holocaust, Jews basically unarmed in Germany, and Eastern Europe, and Nazis and their allies with such tremendous force and power, and many of the Jews not really knowing what was happening to them until it happened, there was very little resistance along the way. In certain ways, how could you resist? What do you do? You resist, you're instantly killed, you hang on, maybe you can survive. So there's this wrestling back and forth. Do we just try to make it to the end? Do we wait for liberation, someone's going to fight, somebody's got to stop this madness. If you fight now, you definitely die. Maybe the moment you fight, your kids are killed. So this agonizing, difficult situation. But there were examples of resistance. The extermination camp, Treblinka. So this was not a a work camp. It was an extermination camp. The people that came in there were exterminated. you, You did not live for long in Treblinka. So there were workers there just enough to keep the the extermination camp going. There was a resistance there that ultimately destroyed the camp and no more Jews were executed there. But only a handful survived. So they, they lived to tell their story. And then the Warsaw Ghetto in Poland was another place of resistance. Again, against impossible odds and with so little weaponry to fight against the, the monstrous Nazi army and all their power and, and starvation diets and all of that, there was resistance. There was fighting back. And after the Holocaust, writings were discovered. The Jewish historian in the community, Emanuel Ringenblom, the, the one that took it on himself to document what was happening. How do, how do you preserve what you write, how do you get it out? Well, what he did is put his writings in these, in these tin cans, which were then buried underground, and then subsequently discovered. So, so much of the, of the history became known in that way. So there is an author who was living in South America, Jewish man named Tzvi Kulitz, and he claimed that was, it was all fictional. Okay, it was all fictional. He claimed to have discovered a hitherto unknown writing from one of the religious Jewish resistance fighters from the Wall Ghetto. Claimed to have found this. And when, he, when it was published, it was published as if it was legitimate. Now, he always meant it as a work of fiction, but it was so convincing that it began to circulate as if it was this real battle that this religious Jewish man, Yosel Rakover, had with God. I wanna share some excerpts of this when we come back. you probably never heard anything quite like this. It's a fictional work, but it's put back in this time of Jews fighting against the Nazi army in Warsaw. We'll come back to this as we talk about wrestling with God in Jewish tradition.
2: the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Shema Yisrael Adonai
1: With sacred words, I close my eyes as I hear them afresh. Hear, o Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Welcome, friends, to our Thoroughly Jewish Thursday broadcast here on the Line of Fire. Here's the number to call with any Jewish-related questions, 866-34-TRUTH. In fact, I may get to some that are posted on our YouTube chat. So if you've got a Jewish-related question or comment you'd like me to interact with, Post it there on YouTube, in our chat there, and our team will grab hold of it. Or we'll get to some calls, 866-348-7884. Remember, friends, if you're listening on KDKR in the DFW area, there's a programming change. You won't hear us at this time. But if you're a late-night person, 11 to 12, you'll get the whole hour. So tell your friends that are late-night people. They can tune in there. Or just download the Line of Fire app on your, your cell phone, download the app. We have an Apple, Android, and then you can just listen live on the phone, or you can listen anytime after to the podcast. So it's an easy way to stay in touch with us. Okay. There is a story. Here's how it was presented by Speak Again, it was fictional from the start, but presented in such a way that people thought it was real. And, and this, is, this is what it says. It was a, um, 1946, it was released as a short story for a Jewish newspaper in Buenos Aires. And, and it says this, <clears throat> in one of the ruins of the Warsaw ghetto, preserved in a little bottle and concealed amongst heaps of charred stone and human bones, the following testament was found written in the last hours of the ghetto by a Jew named Yussel Rakover It's dated to April 28th, 1943, and it begins with these words. I, Yussel, son of David Rakov of Tarnopol a follower of the rabbi of Gare and descendant of the righteous, learned, and holy ones of the families Rakov and Maisels, am writing these lines as the houses of the Warsaw Ghetto are in flames, and the house I am in is one of the last that has not yet caught fire. For several hours now, we have been under raging artillery fire, and all around me, walls are exploding and shattering in the hail of shells, It will not be long before this house I'm in, like almost all the houses in the ghetto, will become the grave of its inhabitants and defenders. As the gunfire draws near, and Rackover knows his death is moments away, he writes, I die at peace, but not pacified, conquered and beaten, but not enslaved, bitter, but not disappointed, a believer, but not a supplicant, a lover of God, but not his blind amen-sayer. I have followed him, Even when he pushed me away, I have obeyed his commandments, even when he scourged me for it. I have loved him. I have been in love with him and remained so, even when he made me lower than the dust, tormented me to death, abandoned me to shame and mockery. He then quotes an account that he once heard from his rabbi about a Spanish Jew who escaped the Inquisition and said to the Lord, God of Israel, I have fled to this place that I may serve you in peace to follow your commandments and glorify your name. You, however, are doing everything to make me cease believing in you. But if you think that you will succeed with these trials in deflecting me from the true path, then I cry to you, my God, and the God of my parents, that none of it will help you. You may insult me. You may chastise me. You may take from me the dearest and the best that I have in this world. You may torture me to death. I will always believe in you. I will love you always and forever, even despite you. Again, friends, this is a unique aspect of deep Jewish spirituality. So Rakovar then closes with his own proclamation to the Lord. Remember, this is in the horrors of the Holocaust. Here then are my last words to you, my angry God. None of this will avail you in the least. You have done everything to make me lose my faith in you, to make me cease to believe in you. But I die exactly as I have lived, an unshakable believer in you. Praise be forever, the God of the dead, the God of vengeance, of truth and judgment, who will soon unveil his face to the world again and shake its foundations with his almighty voice. Shema Israel, hear Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Into your hands, O Lord, I commend my soul. As I wrote in my Job Commentary, where I talk about these very moving traditions, this is what it means to wrestle with God. Uh, there's a quote from the Holocaust inscribed on the wall in a cellar in Cologne, Germany, where some Jews remained hidden for the entire duration of the war. So just lived in a cellar. I believe in the sun, even when it doesn't shine. I believe in love, even when I don't feel it. I believe in God, even when he is silent. Right now, many people going through terrible times, of course, we think of those that just lost children, loved ones in the recent tragic shootings. But others are in their own unique agony, their own sense of loss, devastation. And they are believers. And this is when we say, Lord, I don't understand it. And it seems contrary to everything I would expect and contrary to your nature and your promises, yet I'm gonna hold on to you. I'm gonna trust you. If I let go of you, I have nothing. So I'm going to hold on no matter what because I have nowhere else to go but you. And friend, in the hardest, most difficult times, God will bring comfort. God will bring consolation. God will give you a way to get through no matter how hopeless things seem. May the Lord minister grace to those who are in great pain right now through his son. 866 for truth we will go to deb in bass truth, texas welcome to the line of fire oh, deb, are hello deb you there yeah go oh, ahead
0: yes, I am. i'm sorry I, I didn't hear you say thank you so so uh, i'm grateful to talk with you today and it's interesting that you should be talking about the holocaust that's a little bit a part of my question but I, I think today I'm more interested in, in your opinion as a Jewish man, not so much a theologically-based question. And it has to do with burial practices for Jewish people, uh, basically cremation versus burial. As a Jewish person, I understand that I've read about the the reasonings for certain things, but in, in determining and making decisions, I'm just interested in knowing what you have come to as a Jewish man with your life experiences and your opinions or your thoughts about cremation versus uh, full body burial for a Jewish person.
1: Right. Well, to me, it would be the same for anyone, Jew or Gentile. I, I have loved ones who have been cremated and friends who have been cremated, but that to me is, is not the way to go. I'm not criticizing or condemning those who have there is something about the burial of the person of the recognition uh, first, just on the totally psychological level of, of putting the body in the ground of a final mm-hmm. goodbye of the recognition of that, uh, yeah. her, that, that cannot be done in the same way with the same power with, with, the, with the ashes. I know ashes could be honored or spread in certain way. I, again, I'm not attacking those who've gone this way. But that's right. that's the first thing. The second thing is because we look forward to the resurrection of the body, even though we understand that over time the body will deteriorate and become dust if it's long enough in the grave, and, and we know that, that people can die in a fire and their, their bodies mangled beyond words and things like that, we understand all that. Still, there is something about the burial of the body. And <clears throat> That's why it's always been important to have proper burial uh, in, in in the biblical mentality. Of course, the terrible horror is if someone would die like die at war, and their bodies would be eaten by wild animals or exposed to the elements. That was that was a sign of divine judgment, or that was a, that was a horrible thing you wouldn't wish on someone. So there is the the honoring of the body, the the person metaphorically sleeping with their fathers you know there's a person laid to rest and then there's the expectation of the resurrection of that person in the future and and that's why you know through most religious traditions in in church and synagogue over the centuries that burial has been the norm as opposed to say in hinduism where cremation has been the norm mm-hmm. uh, yeah. there is you know there's an example of burning the bones of some people in the Bible that was done, but to me, that's really not a parallel to to cremation. So I I have friends that have written about this and are very dogmatic about it. Uh, I'm not dogmatic in the same way, but to me, there's a big difference between burial and and cremation for a number of reasons. Let me say once more, I'm not saying that people who decided to be cremated and the the family went along with that, that, that somehow, that they sinned against God, or it's gonna affect their eternity, or that the family didn't grieve the same way. I'm, I'm not implying any of that. I'm simply giving my reasons for burial.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much. That's exactly what I wanted to hear was your your uh, feelings and opinions, and it resonates largely with me. I really appreciate your service and thank for your faithfulness to serve God and to serve
1: us. Sure thing, Deb. It's, it's my joy to do that. You know, of course, there's the other aspect of the cemetery, of the grave site, of the tombstone, of the epitaph, of the going to a place and remembering someone, those things have a certain power as well. You know, my mom and dad buried side by side. My dad passed away in 77, but he had bought, he was always a planner and thinking ahead. He had bought the plot right next to him for uh, for my mom. So it was time to bury her. She was with us here in North Carolina, died at the age of 94 a few years back. But that's where she was buried. Her body was sent back there and that's where we, we had the funeral. So there's something to that, the two of them side by side, the going there to, to remember, to grieve, to think back. So thank you for the call. I appreciate it. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, if you do not yet have my book, Has God Failed You?, and you're really struggling with your faith, or you know someone close to you struggling with their faith, or maybe they've lost their faith, I really encourage you to check out the book. It, it could be a lifesaver, a life changer. Readers have found it tremendously helpful. Has God Failed You? When you get it on our website, we also link you to a video message I preached talking about why so many Christians are leaving their faith. So check it out, Right on our website on the homepage. Has God Failed You? Finding Faith? when you're not even sure God is real. All right, we'll be right back.
2: The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866 34 Truth. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown.
1: Thanks for joining us on the Line of Fire Thoroughly Jewish Thursday broadcast. Do you have a heart to reach Jewish people with the good news about the Messiah? Are you burdened to see them recognize that the one they think is foreign to them or the God of the Catholic church or the one that caused them so much trouble over the years, whatever perspective just got nothing to do with them. Do you long to see them recognize Jesus, Yeshua as the Messiah? I wanna invite you then to partner with us friends because we are on the front lines. Our materials right right now, as I speak, our materials are being used in Israel to reach Israelis in Hebrew with the good news of the Messiah. Even, even as I speak, our materials in English and in Russian and in Spanish and in Portuguese are being used to reach Jewish people around the world with the good news of the Messiah. We put many, many, many years into developing these materials, work really hard at produce them in the best ways that we can. And we continue to produce more. We've, we've got a great new initiative we're working on. We do it with your help. So if, if we've blessed you and you say, we want to partner with you to reach the lost sheep of the house of Israel and remember some of the frontline ministries that you love and, and hear about and support, we've helped undergird them. We've helped supply them with the materials that they can get out to the great audiences they have. So a dollar a day goes a long way to helping see Jewish people come to faith in Jesus the Messiah. Go to our website, askdrbrown.org, Ask drbrown.org. Just click on Donate Monthly Support. But I want you to, before you pledge to give, look at all the different ways that we pour into you every single day. Check it out. All the ways as a supporter that we will pour back into you and bless you and give you access to other materials. So we want to pour into you to strengthen you as you partner with us to reach the lost sheep of the House of Israel. So thanks for joining us. AskDrBrown.org. Click on donate and then monthly support and become one of our torch bearers. Thank you. In advance. And advance into all our torch bearers. Shout out for those watching just wave back at me. Shout out to you. Thank you. You help us do right now. You help us be on the air and do what we're doing. All right. <clears throat> There's a question that was asked on Twitter that I want to address. Joshua why do some people say that the covenants of promise and commonwealth of Israel in Ephesians 2 only refer to spiritual blessings? It sounds like people are trying to divide Israel and the church, and the text never suggests that. Okay, with, with all respect, I, I think the question questions being framed wrongly. The church, the ecclesia, is, especially from a New Testament perspective, saved Jews and saved Gentiles all coming together as one family. All right? Israel remains Israel. There's a nation of Israel. There are Jewish people who remain Jewish people. There are promises that God gave to them. And what Paul tells us in Romans 15 is that the Messiah doesn't cancel those promises. He confirms those promises. And one of the promises reiterated over and over in the Hebrew Bible, and then Psalm 105 plainly, is that the land of Israel is the homeland of the Jewish people, all right? The focus on Ephesians Ephesians one and two is every spiritual blessing in the Messiah. That's the focus, start start in the first chapter, all right? It's not promising the land of Israel to the whole church, to billions of people ultimately, obviously, even logistically. No, what what does Yeshua teach in Matthew five, quoting from Psalm 37? Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth, right? First Corinthians three, Paul says, the whole world is yours. So believers will inherit the whole world, but there is a particular possession for the Jewish people, which is the land of Israel. There's no confusion there. So Israel remains Israel. The church is the called out ones, the saved ones, the believers, the the community of the Messiah, Jew and Gentile. So you have the Gentile world, that remains what it is. You have Israel, that remains what it is. And you have the, the larger commonwealth of Israel, which is now the Gentile believers come into that, but they don't become Israel. And Israel doesn't become Gentiles. It's the larger community related to Israel. So the idea that somehow the land promises to the Jewish people no longer apply because Gentile believers of the Commonwealth of Israel, how does that even follow? The promises were not made to the Commonwealth of Israel, but to the specific Jewish people. And those are the ones God brought back to the land. Those are the ones that the Nazis tried to exterminate. Those are the ones being attacked and hated by the world today. In any case... If you want to probe that more, feel free to to call in one day. Um, Let's see. Uh, Okay. So just to answer this this question from a caller, the author's name of the letter, look up Zvi Kolitz, Z-V-I-K-O-L-I-T-Z. Zvi Kolitz, K-O-L-I-T-Z. Yossel rakavur wrestling with God or letter to God. So again, if you find his name, you'll find this. Okay? Uh, Eric on YouTube asked, could you please explain the process how the Masoretic text came to be? So the Hebrew Bible as it's been preserved through the centuries has been most accurately and most primarily preserved by Jewish people who regarded it as sacred scripture who are part of the tradition that ultimately becomes known as the Masoretes. So even when you have differences within the Septuagint, things like that, 90% of the time, the Septuagint is clearly following the Masoretic textual tradition. So what you have is text being copied through the centuries. Now, over the centuries, you have little difference among the Samaritans and their preservation of the Torah. Some differences among the Greek speaking Jews is reflected in the, the text that were translated by the Septuagint translators over a period of, of, of years. You have those, you have some other text traditions reflected in some of the manuscripts at Qumran. But those are limited, right? And for Septuagint we have to reconstruct what the Hebrew would have been. And then you have, and some of those you do have in Dead Sea Scrolls. Wow, that's the, the Hebrew there and that's what the Septuagint reads. So you have these different textual traditions. But then ultimately because of the triumph of rabbinic Judaism and the preservation of the text in those circles and then it being copied, recopied, copied, recopied, you have now a certain uniformity of the text. That's what we know as the Masoretic textual tradition, although some have argued that the Masoretes themselves were Karaites, so non-rabbinic Jews. But we're, we're all dealing with the same text here. So the problem with the Hebrew Bible is, like other Semitic languages like Arabic, for example, It's not written with full vowels. You have occasional vowel letters, but it's not written with full vowels. So it's read with vowels. It's just not spelled with vowels. So if you're reading an Arabic newspaper today, a Hebrew newspaper today, you're reading it without vowels, but as a native speaker, you read it fluently without a problem. What the Masoretes did is they developed a system for vowels. This line means this sound. These dots mean this sound. This is this vowel. This is that vowel. And they added it under the letters, on top of the letter, to the side of the letter, right? That's where the vowels go, dots, dashes. And then they had different systems. And the one that we're most familiar with is the Tiberian system. So within the Masoretic traditions, they had different systems of writing the vowels, but the same sounds. And then they added in accents to tell you how it should be chanted and how it should be recited and where you should pause in a sentence. So the accents come last. Right. And, and those, it's the most, it's the easiest thing to disagree with those because you say, yeah, they didn't divide the verse correctly. All right. They, they carry weight, but it's easy to disagree with those. The vowels came before that, but they weren't originally written. So you might say, yeah, the text is correct. The letters, the constants, but I differ with the vowels, change the vowels here and it makes more sense. So you'll find that with translations but the Masoretic textual tradition is the most reliable that we have, hence the one that is the starting point for the translation of all Bibles, Hebrew Bibles into English and other languages. Um, One more question, YouTube. In the Old Testament, God gave many laws to Jews and said that many were for all time. How do we reconcile that with the New and Better Covenant? Ah, the New and Better Covenant, the New and Better Covenant either fulfills those laws that were for all time or reiterates them. For example, about 75% of the forever laws in the Torah for all time, for all generations, about 75% of those cannot be fulfilled without a standing temple, a functioning priesthood, and Jewish sovereignty in the land, about 75% of them. So either God commanded his people to do something that's been impossible for most of the time, or he gave a new and better way in which Yeshua brings to fulfillment those things having to do with temple, sacrifice, priesthood, offering, cleansing. He brings those to fulfillment. Other forever commandments having to do with morality, the New Testament reinforces and takes even deeper. So it's very simple to understand. Forever is forever. But when these things can't be kept, either there is fulfillment found in Yeshua or he gives us a new and better way, or he reiterates those things for us today. I deal with some of this in volume four of answering Jewish objections to Jesus. If you really want to dig volume four of answering Jewish objections to Jesus. Hey friends, let's continue to remember those in grief, suffering, pain in America. And let's pray that God would use our current crises. It's one after another. To drive us to our knees, to bring us on our faces, to be crying out to God, revival or we die, to be praying for fresh visitation. It's what we must have. If we'll humble ourselves, if we'll repent of our own sin, God will visit, God will draw near. Back with you tomorrow, ready for all your questions. Oh, and we plan to be live on Memorial Day as well.